From The Advocate magazine in partnership with GLAAD, this is LGBTQ and A. I'm Jeffrey Masters, and with the pandemic, I've been thinking a lot recently about how it's going to transform the queer community, especially when it comes to our physical spaces. I'm talking about neighborhoods in San Francisco and Los Angeles, even those in cities like Louisville and Indianapolis, Norfolk, Virginia, those which are all in traditionally more conservative areas, they've got the fastest growing LGBTQ populations in the U.S., And then there are also the places that maybe they have a single queer-owned bar or coffee shop. Maybe there's just an HIV clinic. Or like where I grew up in the South, there's an LGBTQ center, but it's three towns over. All of these places will be affected, and unfortunately, many of them will close for good. So how will it all look after the pandemic is finally over? Well, that is a rhetorical question because clearly no one has those answers, but that doesn't mean we shouldn't still be starting to ask these questions. To do that, we're going to switch things up on the podcast today. I'm going to play a short clip. It's about four minutes from my interview with Cleve Jones. Cleve, if you don't know, is a truly legendary activist in our community. He was part of the gay liberation movement in the 70s. He was mentored by Harvey Milk. He conceived of the AIDS memorial quilt and also worked on behalf of marriage equality. In the clip you're about to hear, Cleve sets up why these queer spaces are so important. And then, since things are changing in entirely new ways for us with the pandemic, I wanted to know how Cleve is thinking about everything right now. So after the clip, we're going to call him up and find out just that. And then quick programming note, we will be off next week for the election, but after that, we will return. All right, without further ado, here is Cleve Jones. The reality is that the neighborhoods are going away. So if you look at San Francisco's Castro District or Seattle's Capitol Hill or Washington, D.C.'s DuPont Circle or Boys Town in Chicago or West Hollywood or anywhere you want to look, Lavender Heights in Sacramento, wherever you, you look where there's a defined gay neighborhood... It's not just a place where there's bars, though bar life has always been an important part of our culture. It's where very important things happen. First is political power. When we are concentrated in specific precincts, that gives us the power to elect our own to public office, the the power to defeat our opponents, the power to pass legislation that directly affects our lives and our well-being. As we are dispersed, we lose that power. Another super important part of it was the cultural vitality. Look at all the amazing stuff that's come out of West Hollywood, that's come out of my neighborhood. I mean, it's no coincidence that the Rainbow Flag and the first gay synagogue and the first gay film festival and the AIDS Memorial Quilt and the Sisters of Perpetual Indulgence all were born in the Castro because there's that magic that happens when creative people, when choreographers and filmmakers and dancers and DJs and painters are all in that same area. And I know that collaboration can occur very effectively online, but there's nothing like the magic of face-to-face, eye contact, close proximity for that cultural vitality. And then the third thing that's at risk are the specialized social services for our most vulnerable population. So whether we're talking about people like myself who are getting old and long-term survivors of HIV or queer kids, trans kids who are fleeing Trump's America, where do they go? They can't come to the Castro 
a little crappy studio apartment in the Castro is going to cost you $2,500 a month. So this is the reality that nobody's really quite talking about, that that community that has given us so much and strengthened us and inspired us and moved us forward is really being threatened. And there's many factors, uh, technology, uh, many people will say, oh, well, we can live anywhere we want. No, you can't. Ha! Don't tell me that. Try it. You know, go to Duluth and walk down Main Street and hold hands. No offense to Duluth or any other city you might want to try doing that outside of a neighborhood. So we need these these spaces. They're important, and we need to figure out what's our next move. Do you have a solution? <laughs> oh, there's, there's there's no easy solution. But yeah, when people say, "Oh, Cleve, you know, cities change," well, duh. Thank you for that brilliant observation. Yes, of course, cities change, but we want to be thinking about that change. And the big factor is that cities have changed in a way that's profoundly new. Uh, for generations since the Industrial Revolution, the cities were the place where refugees went, immigrants, bohemians, counterculture people, artists, homosexuals, and uh, all these people of all these different backgrounds and ethnicities and genders would you know, create this, these cauldrons of creativity, and, and then they would climb their way up the economic ladder and move out to the suburbs. And that was really accelerated in the post-war era, the 1950s, the 1960s, the 1970s, the phenomena of white flight. So when I got to San Francisco, the population of that city had been declining steadily since the end of World War II. And we were able to go into these neighborhoods that had been largely abandoned by the working class immigrants that had built them originally and create what we created first on Polk Street, then on Castro and Folsom Street and Haight Street, you know, these really vibrant communities. These are now some of the most expensive neighborhoods in the world. So the district that gave us Harvey Milk is now inhabited increasingly by white, heterosexual, cisgendered millionaires. When you arrived in San Francisco, you had a sleeping bag and a couple shirts and $42, and you were welcomed into this guy's home that you had never met who was not expecting you. It was an address you had from a friend, and it was a safe place to live and to get on your feet. Even if it's not in San Francisco, like that mentality is so unique. Yeah, I, don't, I think that's pretty much gone now, partly because it's just so difficult to survive. So the young people I meet in their early 20s you know, these, and of course, San Francisco, it's all tech. Uh, and there's a lot of anger towards the tech invaders. But I have a lot of empathy and, and uh, real concern for them because, first of all, most of them are working 60, 70 hours a week. They have no job security. They're, they would never use the, the phrase exploited workers to describe themselves, but you are, Blanche, you are. But I think also back then, and especially in San Francisco, it was still kind of hippy-dippy. It was very counterculture. It was very communal. And everybody was kind of expected and really encouraged to contribute in some way. You didn't necessarily have to be all that good at what you did, but you needed to do something, whether it was a drag show or a video or a film or a poetry contest or something. There was a 
there was a real nurturing of people's creative impulses and a lot of support for it. There were so many places I knew where if I was hungry, I could just show up and there would be a, every night there would be a communal potluck dinner. There were probably six or seven of those households within a few blocks of where I was living on Castro Street. So I never went hungry. That was Cleve Jones speaking in April of 2017. And now let's give him a call. Hey there. Hey, how are you? I'm okay. Can you hear me all right? I can. Thank you for agreeing to do this. It's funny, though. You know, I'm out in the country, and my next door, my immediate next door neighbor is a cranky old mule. Do you know the sound a mule makes? (laughs) I do not. You may be hearing it. (laughs) It's quite dramatic and amusing. I went out and fed him some apples, and maybe that'll keep him quiet. (laughs) Yeah, so I wanted to talk to you because we've talked before about the disappearing neighborhoods, these physical spaces where we can gather and live. They've been going away. And now cities, big and small, are changing in entirely new ways. How are you thinking about what queer community might look like after COVID-19? Well, I'm very concerned about it. And I don't think anybody really can predict with any certainty at all Uh, what these neighborhoods are going to look like. In our previous conversation, you know, we talked about the importance of the neighborhoods, not just as a place where people can have fun and uh, be with their friends, but also as places that uh, contributed enormously to the advancement of all of our people. Even folks who've never visited a neighborhood, let alone live in one, have benefited from what came out of those neighborhoods. So this was already being threatened. And now with COVID, it adds a whole new element to it. In my town, San Francisco, we're seeing a definite outflow of people. I've never seen this many for rent signs since the last uh, recession. It's quite visible. Uh, Many people have left. Many people are talking about leaving. So I think it just sort of underscores the vulnerability of these neighborhoods and I, I hope people are paying attention to it. I mean, you've said that one of your favorite places to organize is bars. Like, are you turning all of those efforts now to like digital means? There's so many effects rippling out from this. One is it's harder to organize stuff. But, you know, I was reflecting on this earlier today. And I think that there's some pretty uh, interesting aspects to this. And one of this has to do with who owns the real estate. Now, in the Castro, very few of the bars, very few of the buildings housing the bars are owned by the bar owners. There's a couple of exceptions, but not many. There's there's an issue for our community that is different from other communities, and it has to do with organizing economically. We don't do it. So in my town, uh, for example, we have very well-organized efforts in Chinatown, and the Mission District to maintain the integrity of those neighborhoods and the cultural distinction of those neighborhoods through things like housing development corporations, banks, savings and loans, credit unions. Uh, We don't do that uh, in our community. And our assets, our wealth, is not transmitted to the next generation of LGBTQ, except in those very rare cases 
where uh, uh, same-sex couples have children who turn out themselves to be queer. So usually what happens is that the wealth that was amassed by uh, members of our community does not stay in the community when those people pass away. When you think about, for example, the enormous amount of wealth that had been accumulated in the form of real estate in places like San Francisco and West Hollywood and other communities uh, that vanished with the people who died of AIDS. So we're not particularly good at, at thinking of our, of our community in economic terms, and I think it's going to be to our detriment. I never thought about that. Because wealth accrual happens oftentimes through blood families, we don't have a conception of inheritance like touching chosen communities, for lack of better words. Is that right? It's exactly what I'm saying. And I think, you know, I'm not wealthy, but I have a little house in the country. And when I pass away, that's going to go to my sister and my nieces. And there's nothing wrong with me wanting it to be that way, but it can, you know, it's not be part of the community. And I'm, I'm in a little gay community up here. It's a town called Guerneville, just north of San Francisco. This was a thriving gay resort area in the 70s and 80s. And then many came up here to during the AIDS years, but that's all gone because those people are gone and that property changed hands. Think about San Francisco. Think about the enormous amount of money that's locked up in, in those big, uh, beautiful homes up on the hills surrounding the Castro area. And we're talking about hundreds of millions of dollars in real estate that will not continue within the community. Well, along those lines, like, tell me if you think this is crazy, but I'm expecting rent prices to start to go down in these cities. Is any part of you hopeful that that will allow queer people to be able to, like, afford these places again? We are definitely seeing a reduction in rent in San Francisco and more rental units are on the market. It is unclear how long that will last. Historically, dips in in property value or rentals uh, have not lasted uh, for long in any part of California. I guess we don't know like what these big big cities will look like in the next like one to three years, but like historically, it has been the artist class that has moved in and like revitalized these places. And to me, that also like signals queer people. Yes, I think that's absolutely true. I think that there is a possibility that what you're saying could happen, that, but it's going to depend on how long COVID lasts and how deep of an impact it makes on us. And I think it also is going to be impacted a bit by what happens in this election and the aftermath. We shall see, but these are uh, very uncertain times, to put it mildly. I mean, we can't predict the future, but what about like your own future? Like, Do you expect to stay in San Francisco forever? I'm very, very lucky. I, My partner and I have managed to hold on to a rent-controlled apartment in the Castro, and we have a little tiny house, little tiny cottage up in uh, where the Redwoods meet the vineyards in Guerneville. So I have uh, homes in two gay communities, and I cannot imagine leaving. Now I'm old. You know, I don't, I just turned 66. I don't want to start over somewhere. I can't imagine starting over, and my biological family is also in the Bay Area. I can't imagine starting over, but my younger friends, it's remarkable how many of them are leaving, especially the ones, of course, who were bartenders, people working in entertainment and restaurants. Yeah, I don't know. 
who knows what's going to happen? Will the potential re- reduction in, in housing costs uh, balance out having to go somewhere else for other reasons? I don't know. We'll, we're going to see. But it's a shame that we haven't done more to protect ourselves from this kind of upheaval. And uh, in San Francisco, you know, it's, it's such a place for developers and speculators. And so when, when you look at the neighborhoods that have managed to maintain their distinctive character, and I, I do think specifically of the, the Chinese community and the Latino community, it's because they organized economically with housing development corporations and uh, creating cultural district zones that uh, required certain things of businesses opening up in there. And we, we have been very, very slow uh, to even talk about things like that. We, this is a sad thing to say, but it's true, and I've, I've checked it out with people from our big uh, philanthropic organizations, that um, LGBT people don't have a really great record of contributing to their community's organizations. A very, very small percentage of us actually give money. So uh, we're in a vulnerable position right now, and I think we stand to lose uh, quite a bit of political power and cultural vitality and social services uh, if we're not very vigilant. I mean, we've made so much progress for the last 20 years. Obviously, we still have more to make. But like, what is your assessment of the momentum right now? Like, I guess, have we slowed down is my question? <sighs> you know, if you if you just sort of step of back a few paces and look at look at the history of our movement it's a very short history yeah yes there were it happened before the 1960s but really the, the, what we call the lgbtq community is really only about a half century old I mean, using you as an example, the entire movement has almost, I mean, not the entire movement, but like the majority of it has taken place in your entire lifetime. <laughs> well, exactly. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> indeed. and thanks for the reminder. Um, yeah. Uh, so we can look at this and we can think, well, my goodness, the lives of the people we now call LGBTQ have really been transformed uh, in the last 50 years. We've gone from a criminal class to uh largely accepted in most of the of the uh, western world uh, marriage equality uh, protection from any forms of discrimination much less violence no longer considered mentally ill i mean our lives have, have really been transformed and along the way we've created institutions to sustain us but very few of those institutions i mean if you just think of lgbtq organizations that are more than 30 years old, more than 50 years old. Can you think of any that are 75 years old? No. And like the biggest ones I can think about are all HIV AIDS focused. Did that take all like the air out of the balloon? Like originally, so like we didn't think about these other things because we were like Mm -hmm. fighting HIV. There was necessarily a great focus on that. But if you look at the organizations that started before HIV, Almost everything you can think of really didn't start until the 1970s. So one can only imagine how how dramatically our lives will be transformed in the next 50. You know, I think about it in terms also of, for example, I own Harvey Milk's Bullhorn, and right now it's on loan to the Smithsonian. And the exhibit there has been extended due to the COVID crisis, but at some point they're going to return 
are these bullhorn to me. I also have a number of other interesting artifacts and some papers uh, that should be preserved, should be made available to scholars and researchers in the future. So where should they go? Now, in San Francisco, we have the GLBT History Society, which is a wonderful organization. Uh, an old roommate of mine in the 70s actually helped start it. But are they going to survive? Are they going to be around in 50 years? Are young people that are just coming of age now and the generations that are going to follow them, are they going to be interested in this? Are they going to write checks to support this kind of thing? So I think we're in a period of real flux here. And when I talk to young people, many say to me, and I'm talking about like, you know, 18 to undergrads that I meet when I'm uh, visiting colleges or doing Zoom calls, the 18 to 23-year-olds that I talk to, many of them say they would like to be able to live in a place like the Castro, don't see it as being affordable. You know, I, I have no clue what, how strongly they're going to identify with the community. And it may be that uh, assimilation will bring the end of these distinctive communities if people no longer feel the need for them. Or if COVID lingers on for a couple more years, how many of the businesses that that provide that space are going to survive? Uh, You know, uh, in in the Castro, there's been a very vigorous conversation going on about racism within the LGBT community and particularly within the Castro and what can be done to make queer people of color uh, feel more comfortable. So they've been holding meetings and trying to come up with strategies to address it. And meanwhile, the businesses they, they, they want to transform are going under. Maybe this is the time to think about it in terms of like, okay, how can we empower uh, queer people of color to own businesses and encourage entrepreneurship and transform ourselves that way while also maintaining those businesses. But I don't see or hear many, many people talking about these issues at all. I mean, I think you bring up a great point because in us discussing the disappearing neighborhoods around the country, you know, I think there's a large portion of the population of, you know, trans people or people of color that said, hey, I never felt welcome in those spaces to begin with. Yeah, and uh, that's a sad commentary. Um, but the reality is that all of our people, queer, trans, people of all colors, have definitely benefited from things that have come from the neighborhoods. You may never have been to the Castro, but legislation written by people who were elected from the Castro benefited your lives. You may never have been to the Castro, but models of service, social service, advances in how we uh, treat HIV, how we support transgender people, all of those came from these neighborhoods, from these concentrations. Even the quilt, the AIDS quilt, which traveled the country and transformed a lot of people's opinions. Yeah, and when you look at at who were the real pioneers in assisting transgender people to live full and healthy lives came from the neighborhood. How we care for people with AIDS came from the neighborhood. Okay, so to your point, it's not as it's not just that easy. It's not a black and white thing as like good or bad. There there was always things about every neighborhood that are positive. I'm not interested in, in creating some illusionary, uh, fictitious 
utopian neighborhood that never existed and never will. But now that we are threatened with the disappearance of these neighborhoods, we need to think very clearly about why they matter to us. With all of their flaws, sometimes you know serious flaws, they have been very important in advancing us as a, as a people. And I have no, I'm not making any predictions, but I, I think that we're really at risk of losing these neighborhoods. Wow. Um, I have one more question for you, which is that, you know, I mentioned like the AIDS memorial quilt, which you conceived of. I think like as we move on from COVID, which we will do eventually, we're going to have to figure out how to grieve and process the deaths of so many people. As someone who's done something similar before, do you have any like just insights or advice into what the grieving might or should look like? Uh, I mean, there are a quarter million families out there who are grieving. And there are millions more who are grieving, perhaps not the loss of a family member, but the loss of a job, the loss of uh, hope for their future. There's a lot of grief going on out there, a lot of fear. And I would hope that our community, with our experience during the previous pandemic, uh, might have something to contribute to that that process of, of grieving and eventually healing. But it's hard to imagine that right now when the infection rate and hospitalization rates are soaring across the country again. It's really, I can't tell you how painful and frustrating it is for me to watch so many of the mistakes that we made uh, during the worst years of HIV AIDS being repeated now by yet another Republican administration. I just think it's just, uh, it's beyond shameful. We, sh- we should know better. We should have learned. And, uh, the fact that we didn't and the fact that so much was apparently forgotten um, troubles me greatly. I mean, I think that like the historical timing and coincidence of Trump's presidency in this moment in history is just like astonishing. You know, it's breathtaking. It's just really huh, breathtaking. See what I did there? Didn't even mean to do it. But uh, <laughs> there you have it. It's, it takes our breath away. Well, thank you so much for talking today and being so kind over the years. It means a lot to me. Well, it's always a pleasure to speak with you and keep up your good work. I have a lot of respect for you and with pleasure hearing from you. Thanks. We'll talk soon. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. And that was Cleve Jones. We originally spoke in 2017 when his memoir came out. That is called When We Rise, and I really can't recommend it enough. Now, if you want to hear more special episodes like this one, please let us know. I'm on Twitter at JeffMasters1. The show is on Twitter at LGBTQPod. Come connect with us, let us know what you think, and feel free to recommend people. If there are other members of the community that you want to hear from, especially history makers like Cleve, please let us know. You can find me on social media or our contact information is on our website. That's LGBTQPodcast.com. Now we're brought to you by The Advocate Magazine in partnership with GLAAD. Come check out all of our amazing work at advocate.com and glad.org. All right, we'll be back in a couple weeks. Bye.